Hello and welcome to the Lost Boys Podcast. I'm Tandy, joined by Harlan Fear. Say hi, champ. Hi, champ. And we say champ because you just took down the Lost Boys Lorcana Invitational. How's it feel? I sure did. I sure did. It was a lot of fun. It was a hard-fought victory. But yeah, I, I ended up taking it down over the two days. Yeah, uh, so for those of you who missed the event, we actually, uh, the Lost Boys team uh, worked with Apex Gaming out of Caldwell, Ohio, to bring you the Lost Boys Lorcan Invitational. We invited 12 of Magic the Gathering's Stone Cold Killers, and we gave away four invites to people who played in our qualifier events, and uh, we ran a $5,000 close event at the uh, home store in Caldwell, and uh, Harlan was victorious. Harlan, why don't you uh, take a minute and give us a breakdown of... Um, who you tested with, uh, the deck that you ended up playing, and just like your general thoughts about the event, man. Yeah, so I tested and prepared with uh, two old friends of mine, uh, Mason Clark and Brennan DeCandio. They were both also playing in the event. And, you know, it just kind of made sense. We were going to room together anyway at the event to, you know, save on hotel costs. Mm -hmm. So it just made sense to work together. We've done it before in the past. So, yeah, it, it just made getting ready for the event a lot more fun. You so know, you don't have to worry about somebody not being as invested as you because, you know, we're, we all have the same skin in the game. Right. And uh, I mean, look, if you're working with uh, two players that, that are as accomplished as Mason Clark and Brendan DeCandio, you know, the they're also extremely dedicated to the games that they play. And if if you're working together, I can only assume that uh, you're not even the person who worked the hardest. And I know how hard you work. Yeah, it's it's also nice for me as somebody who is way more, you know, the back end once the game, like fi I figure out the games more than like the decks and how to build them. That's not really my best skill as like a card game player. Mm -hmm. But Mason and Brennan are both game designers by trade. They have professional experience working at game design companies. So that's also like I had like the the secret tech of I, I got like perfect card evaluation from those two. Right. Right. And right. you know, they're able to not only see how the game pieces work inside the engine, but they're also able to find, you know, uh, two or three card combinations or multi-turn sequences with a couple different cards that might not be something that too many people are able to discover without either stumbling across it randomly or just like finding it, um, you know, through just like sheer force of will testing. And one of the things that I, I really liked about y'all's build, and it's something that not a lot of people actually have um, really shown me in the last few months is the willingness to ramp extremely hard into Stitch Carefree Surfer. Yeah, so that was a huge thing. And we've even talked about that card a ton on previous episodes of the podcast. As every week I was playing more and more getting ready for the Invitational. Right. That card just stood out to me as this really powerful thing to be doing, not only for the cards, but just the 4-8 the body. It just dominates the board. Yeah, I mean, four strength is not, you know, something to write home about, but it's still quite a bit in this game. And a willpower essentially means that it's going to take four of those like one cost goons to trade up into it. And the fact that it draws a card means that it's it's starting to trade for like five, six, seven of these cheap things out of the, the really aggressive strategies. And even if you're playing against something like Ruby Amethyst Control and they play Dragonfire, you still drew two cards off of it. And so it, it becomes like a negative exchange and ramping into it 
with characters like Mickey Mouse Detective and Bell Strange with Special just feels like a natural fit. And it's one of the reasons why I think your Sapphire and Amber uh, mid-range deck was just so good in the field. Yeah, exactly. So we really early identified that, you know, Surfer Stitch was really what we wanted to be doing um, as that's basically the best thing to be doing because Steel is so strong and Ruby Amethyst was the next most played deck that we expected. And the drawing two cards, like I was talking to Frank Karsten at the event that, you know, in the, the Ruby Amethyst matchup, they're playing friends on the other side to draw two cards and our friends on the other side come stapled onto a four eight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously it costs a little more and you can't sing a carefree surfer, but you know, the, the thoughts are the same, right? Drawing cards in any game where uh, you have to play cards from your hand as resources and also as threats uh, has a lot of value. And we, we know the friends on the other side is one of the best amethyst cards because of that specifically. And by nature, Carefree Surfer is going to be one of the bigger, better top end threats in like a more mid rangey, you know, um, attrition based mid range deck. And, uh, in your build, you're able to leverage those ramp characters early to turn on the ability of Carefree Surfer, but also get to it more quickly. So it's just like a, a harmonious, uh, coming together of those two things. Yeah, exactly. The, we were, definitely trending towards carefree surfer as like our main plan as we kind of expected every deck to be trending towards and then you know brendan one day just messaged the chat and was like all right if everybody's this is a magic reference for those uh who don't know magic but everybody's just gonna be playing primeval titan mirrors let's play rampant growth and wood elves (laughs) so if everybody's going to be playing carefree surfer why not play one jump ahead and mickey detective and just do it faster and be ahead when you do it. Right. And I, I think that's smart. Uh, Sapphire has been one of the least explored colors, I think, in Lorcana thus far. It started out as being maybe the most explored color in the first week or two or leading up to the release of the event because Bell Stranger Special was the only character that they showed that could quest for five. And it, yes, it takes some time and it takes some effort to get to, to 10 ink. But if your deck has a lot of velocity from things like Carefree Surfer, uh, things like, you know, Robin Hood, Unrivaled Archer, these are all cards that kind of replace themselves, generate more resources. And then your Bell Strange with Specials extra ink drops actually becomes uh, something of a utility on top of being that powerful uh, burst of damage. Yeah, I think really the thing that held most people back early, especially including myself with Sapphire decks, was everybody was focused on Bell as the payoff for ramping. But really what you need to do is find your payoffs like Hades, Schemer, and Stitch, uh, Carefree Surfer. And those are the payoffs to ramping so that you get to those early and stabilize the board. And then Bell is actually an enabler for that because mm-hmm. you get to ink the additional time. And then Bell translates to way later in the game also being a payoff. But you you don't want to plan on Bell being a payoff. You actually want to plan on Bell being an enabler. Right. So you're using all parts of the buffalo, right? You're using the yep. extra ink drops to ramp into the sevens. And then later on, you're also using it as a big burst of damage engine. And that that's that was a part of the deck that I thought was really cool. 
Uh, after decklists were were posted and they were public, I actually went and tried your deck sum on the Pixelborn ladder, and I got my butt kicked. But I watched y'all play at the event, and your sequencing was significantly different than mine. So it's clear that playing hundreds of games with your deck has a significant upside. Yeah, it, it was really funny to show up to the event on Friday, you know, and everybody gets there early because Friday's kind of the travel day, and then everybody's you know trickles into the game store and is hanging out, and you know. It's also a more laid back event and open deck list. So we're just playing pickup games on Friday with yeah. our decks for the actual event. Right. And, you know, as we're talking to people, everybody's like, yeah, like you guys showed up with a Sapphire deck. What are you doing? Like, <laughs> did you guys not test? <laughs> and it's well, like, turns out you tested a no. hundred times more than everybody else. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's, you know, kind of like in the back of their mind thinks our deck is just not good looking at it on paper. and. You know, Amber Sapphire in general has always had the occasional top eight, but those decks have never been cohesive, Mm -hmm. right? They've always been somewhat disjointed. Like you see Simba's and Phil and Maximus in the deck as like these random curve considerations instead of just trying to streamline your game plan and just do your thing and kind of ignore your opponent until you've achieved your, you know, ink advantage, and then you can start interacting with your opponent and playing to the board. So here's something I noticed and I'd like to talk about, uh, about your deck in, in particular. And if if you notice the, uh, those of you at home who are watching, if you notice the construction of this uh, Sapphire and Amber uh, ramp deck, it actually has a lot of trouble killing Simba Protective Cub early. And I think like level one of a lot of decks in the format is Lilo wishing upon a star into Simba protective cub. And that burst of lore over the first few turns is something that sometimes puts y'all a little too far behind. We saw Brenda Candio uh, was defeated in the quarterfinals against Don Delosier uh, doing that very thing. And many of the games that you did lose in the tournament were to that draw specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, the deck as it's built is fairly weak to that combination when you're on the draw. On the play, you even against that specific combination, they do get off to the early lore lead. Mm-hmm. But then you you kind of stabilize with them at like 14 lore instead of like 10. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it ends up not being too too big of a deal when we're on the play. On the draw, if they have specifically Lilo into Simba, it's kind of a nightmare situation. Um, and our draw has to be really strong, which in open lists is not impossible to do, but right. if you know I was playing this in a normal uh, like 2K tournament, it would be a lot harder to make sure that I had that uh, proper hand for that. Um, and that's something we were definitely aware of. Um, another trend that we saw on top of the Carefree Surfer trending upwards, even in the whole new world builds, you'll see actually some of the competitors in this event Every single one, I think, had Carefree Surfer, and some had as many as four, even mm-hmm. in their whole New World builds, that everybody was trending upwards. And uh, Kurt Spies, another competitor, showed up with a build that was way closer to what we would have played if we were playing Whole New World, which actually doesn't even play Lilo. Yeah, and well, that's kind well, of what we were expecting was the less aggressive, more in the middle versions of the, the Whole New World builds. We'll get to Kurt's deck in a little bit because I think his is one of the more interesting builds in the tournament, and I do want to talk about it uh, at length. Um, so uh, one last thing about y'all's deck that I, I do want to discuss, and one thing that I want to discuss about the nature of this tournament and 
really competitive Lorcana play in general, a trend that Beaumont and I noticed was how little either player was willing to quest in the first five turns. Uh, just to like try to gain a uh, lore advantage because almost every single deck had some sort of significant punish for doing so. And oftentimes what would happen is the Amber Steel Stitch Blitz decks would play a few characters early. The opponents, if they challenge them with their own cheap characters, don't quest, wait until you have grab your sword, use grab your sword, clear your opponent's stuff. Then you start questing and have full control of the board. But against your deck specifically, so few of your characters actually were vulnerable to grab your sword that if that was the game plan that they were trying to lean into, they'd often need to grab your swords. And sometimes that was not enough. Yeah, exactly. And that was a big part of why our deck was constructed the way it was. And that's why, you know, we got so many questions about why do you have Gramatala instead of Phil? You know, Gramatala has to combo with another character to take down a Simba where, you know, Phil can just trade. But exactly what you're talking about was the reason. If I just play a Phil, they can just not do anything and then grab your sword me on a later turn when they've just done their thing anyway, because they want to be um, shifting a character. And if they shift a Tink, they don't even need to grab your sword. The, The Phil just falls to the Tink and then... I'm way behind where at least the Tala threatens the trade. So if they don't have the Simba, they still are completely brick walled because there's no way they want to trade a Lilo for a Tala. And if they do have the Simba, then the Tala plus, you know, a Stitch New Dog can still trade for it. And if they they do get brick walled completely and they have to wait for that grab your sword, I get my resource back out of the Tala. No, for sure. I, I think that those are all great points. And uh, I do want to highlight uh, one of our decks from our last chance qualifier competitors. Uh, his name was Jeebus. Uh, he's a uh, ex storebook brawl streamer. Um, I've, you know, come to become friends with him. Uh, Kyle's his regular name, his real name. I forgot his last name, but uh, Jeebus uh, brought Sapphire Amber to the LCQ and his build looked strong and i know that he's tested a ton on pixelborn just like y'all but his vision and his build were was significantly different than than y'all's and his build did have philatides and it had four copies of lantern and so i gotta ask did y'all try lantern over one jump ahead so we didn't because our deck has bell um having the actual oh sure sure play yeah. actually really matters and he didn't um yeah, also Lantern doesn't let you play Let It Go on curve a lot of times. Mm. Um, I actually was thinking definitely- Gremital allowing you to sing the one jump ahead on occasion to help you ramp. Like Lantern costs two, and if you don't have a ton of one drops to like get a rebate when you play it, and missing the ink drop for having Bell in your deck, yeah, the one jump ahead just makes way more sense. Yeah, so one jump, um, also you'll notice we didn't even play four one jumps. Right. One jump was actually just there for when you kind of hit your your fail case, in quotes, of not having a Mickey. Mickey is like the most fundamental card to every draw, mm-hmm. but one jump kind of lets you cheat a little bit where, you know, oh, I couldn't find a Mickey off my mulligan or off my, um, really off my mulligan because you can't one jump and um, be our guest on the same turn, obviously. But basically, you're, that's why we play Be Our Guest also, is you really want to maximize hitting Mickey on three. And when you have a one jump, you kind of can skip that because you've already ramped once. 
So then, you know, you can you can play your your kind of filler card with Mr. Smee to stabilize the board a little bit better. Don't or you, you call Mr. Smee filler. I watched Mr. Smee just absolutely dumpster all of these one and two cost character decks that y'all played against. Two five with Rapunzel is essentially unkillable when your opponent is a bunch of two twos and Captain Hooks. I'm sorry. Yeah, Mr. Smee is an all star against the Amber Steel <laughs> Whole New World deck. I, I will say that. But he is actually he was the one of the very last cards added to the deck. Um, and he was there actually to act kind of as filler, just like one jump ahead for those games where you don't have a Mickey on curve. And it he don't get me wrong, he's incredible and he does his job very, very well. But that his his job is to be Mickey's backup, you know. He's I'm on the saying. bench and when he comes in, you know, he's a full Rudy. He, he's getting the touchdown, but uh, he, he does start on the bench for sure. Have you ever uh, watched a football game where they're like on the goal line trying to score via a run and they bring in the biggest, baddest mofo from the defense to be the lead blocker for the running yep. back? That's Mr. Schmee. And the yeah. running back is uh, Rapunzel, who gives him the boost and draws <laughs> some cards. So. Uh, all right, so uh, that that is the uh, amber and sapphire deck that that uh, y'all played at the event. A little bit of a rundown for you, uh, but uh, in our next segment, we're actually going to go over uh, all of the players and the decks that were in the Invitational. Harlan played against some of them, but not all of them. Uh, so we'll get some uh, maybe some surprise insight on what you thought of their decks. Uh, maybe what uh, could have happened if you ended up playing against these players at some point. Uh, but we're just going to go down the list and we're going to start off with Matthew Campos Ruby Amethyst Control deck. Uh, th so this is uh, a Ruby Amethyst deck that uh, looks pretty similar to the things that we've seen in the past from Ruby Amethyst Control. But it is important to note a few things. Four copies of Mickey Mouse Brave Little Tailor to help close the games very quickly. A ton of the evasive characters like Goofy Daredevil as well as Pongo. And then last but not least, zero copies of Magic Mirror for those mirror matches and instead playing the off maligned Ursula's Cauldron, that deck manipulator that doesn't require more ink past the initial two, but doesn't replace itself and doesn't count as raw card advantage. Yeah, so I, I didn't play against Matt Campo. Um, Mason did playing our deck, though, um, and Mason was victorious. But um, I do like a lot of the decisions Matt and I know um, he worked with somebody who also played in the LCQ and then played right. in the, the side one case. Yes, that, Campo um, did three or else or he won our LCQ event and then uh, did three of that first pod and made it right into day two. So I was expecting big things from this dude. Yeah, yeah. And they tore it up with their list. Um, I do like their list. The only thing I really don't like is actually the cauldron. I think this list might just be better if they were mirrors. Um, but that's that's really uh, it seems to be like a personal preference on whether you want to play those super long grindy games or if you want to get your lead early. But I do really, really like the strategy they they approached the tournament with um, just having all these giant threats. Right. You know, you have eight evasive threats yeah. and just four Ursula's, a bunch of Aladdin's. And they their approach to the Ruby Amethyst mirror match was. I don't want to do this Mickey broom shenanigans and play like a million turn game. I just want to get you dead. Right. And, you know, there weren't that many Ruby Amethyst mirrors in the tournament. And I would have loved to have seen this build in those mirrors because those mirrors with the brooms become 
really taxing. And all you really need to, to not die in the mirror is one copy of Broom and one Befuddle. And that will essentially mean that you don't ever get decked because the Broom puts the Befuddle back in the deck and then the Befuddle bounces the Broom. The only way your opponent can really stop it is to exert your Broom and then challenge it somehow or to directly remove it with Fire the Cannons or Dragonfire or something like that. Um, and so what ends up happening a lot of times in those Ruby Amethyst Mirrors, not only do you just get to down to being physically decked, but sometimes you even go one step further with Mickey Mouse Wayward Sorcerer and you go like putting multiple things back in the deck and brooming like five or six times. Uh, that's not what Matt Campo is doing. He is saying, I'm playing four BLTs and he's going to put that sandwich right and down your throat. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, we started referring to this build as like Ruby Amethyst Stompy instead of Ruby Amethyst Control. You know, he's just trying to slant, like, he'll keep the game under control with a Maui or a Dragonfire and then be prepared as like this flo- this thing floating over your head of like, don't get, don't get too ahead on board because then it's all going to get nuked. Right. And well, a lot I'm of times he goes basic threats. Right. And a, the the Mickey Mouse Brave Little Taylor's, uh, Taylor is also just like one of the most powerful threats you can follow up with in the game after you sing Be Prepared. And this deck seems like it's designed to sing Be Prepared with one of those large monsters and then play a huge follow up like an Ursula or a Mickey Mouse. And it, it seemed to work out really well to him until he ran up against all Mr. Mason, right? Yeah. And to be fair, our our build with Ramp is we are built specifically for ruby amethyst in mind yep and the scariest thing they can do in the matchup is actually have magic mirror Mm -hmm. and this build didn't have it so going into the matchup against matt campo you know it was like oh okay so it's like a ruby amethyst build that's like built to play like a big threat every turn and not magic mirror you and that's like exactly the game that our deck wants to play against Mm -hmm. you know we have hades and let it go so just one big character is not going to be great when we're playing a Hades plus a Maleficent or let it go plus a st- surfer and you're just going to get buried in cards and on board. All right. Well, moving on to the next deck. Uh, this one is also very interesting to me specifically. Uh, this is going to be Kurt Spee's Amber Steel Stitch Blitz. Uh, Stitch Blitz is a deck that uh, I've been working on since you know, like week one or week two of constructed being uh, something that we were talking about and working on aerial spectacular singer. I think we were doing episode one of the lost boys podcast and Bomat said, Oh yeah. Aerial spectacular singer can sing a whole new world way have schedule. And I was just like, Oh my God. <laughs> and yeah. now it's just like a huge focal point for all these decks and they're hyper aggressive. They play these one and two drop things and they try to spray onto the board, use aerial to refuel, but they also have a lot of other ways to do that with Stitch Rockstar and now Carefree Surfer. This build in particular using four copies of Lantern to help push towards those late game threats like the Stitch Carefree Surfer. And Kurt was also one of our LCQ winners and his deck looked phenomenal. Yeah, so Kurt is actually another longtime friend of mine. Um, I met him years and years ago. Uh, he's in the Baltimore Magic scene. He mm. plays a lot of other card games, including now Lorcana. And, you know, we were at the store on Friday hanging out, and I saw him walk in the front door, and, you know, it's like a six-hour drive for an LCQ. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, Kurt's here? Well, that's a slot gone. Yeah, minus and one sure slot. Enough, yeah. yeah, minus one slot, and that was very true. And, yeah, he brought what kind of was our backup deck for the tournament. Um, I do, it, it's weird to call 
this deck stitch blitz because it has cut the lilos right there's almost like two distinct versions of the whole there's world a build. different build okay no one there is no one build everyone builds it differently and everyone has their reasons for building it differently you know we have two cop or three copies of lefou in this build because it, it quests for two on the two drop slot but you know we can play aladdin cornered swordsman instead which a lot of people did and it's more about Finding the uh, the right combinations of things that can lead up to 20 lore without exposing you to things like Tinkerbell Giant Fairy, but infinitely customizable. And Kurt here, cutting those one-cost Lilos, I think, is a huge deal. Well, so uh, more what I was getting at is that these builds are fundamentally different than the Lilo builds because they, they play the Lanterns instead to manage right. your, your uninkable count. And I, I think it might be important moving forward to differentiate between the two sure. of, you know, the aggressive Lilo builds. And then these lantern builds are actually more of like, I view them as combo decks more than aggro decks. Sure. You'll notice that, that Kurt has four of the one drop Simba here. And that card is huge to his deck. Basically he combos that with a stitch Rockstar. You uh, effectively get to pay one ink to draw two and discard one card. Right. And it's all about piecing together, basically double grab your sword to, you know, wipe your opponent's whole board. And then you you quest two or three times over multiple turns to get ahead where the, the Lilo builds are really trying to go Lilo into Simba or Lilo Aladdin into Simba and get way ahead early and then use whole new world to refill and keep pushing damage that way. Yeah. Uh, keep pushing lore where this deck is very much just you know keeping it's it almost acts more like our ramp deck in that you were just playing to the board to make your opponent play to the board and then instead of you know managing it with let it go and hades this deck is managing it with grab your sword and tinkerbell and just going over the top of you as the game goes longer yeah it's it's really splitting the difference between that really hyper aggressive and mid-range strategies and I think it did it well. Lantern looked quite strong. Uh, you know, multiple instances of turn three Sitch Rockstar are, it's very difficult for most decks to compete with. Um, the one thing I was concerned with was so often he would play a, a Sitch Rockstar. And then when he started playing his characters, they had no substance when they were getting challenged. And so while they replaced themselves, they didn't really replace themselves because they were never really anything to begin with. And so my first couple builds of the deck often would play uh, goons and my two drops would be like Minnie Mouse uh, from Amber, the two drop, uh, just to have like a harder time for your opponent to just like bash into them when they're just vulnerable. Uh, but here with Simba, uh, Future King and LeFou, uh, I, not the instigator, but the Amber one, uh, you know, the, these characters and even Captain Hook, uh, these things just like don't have that much substance when they're getting challenged. And so, like you said, it does function more like a combo deck and it's trying to just completely overwhelm them from multiple different angles um, while also just uh, having that longevity with things like Carefree Surfer and Rockstar. Uh, so a uh, huge shout out to Kurt for not only qualifying for uh, our Invitational uh, in the last chance spot, but also making day two into the top eight and uh, a really cool stitch blitz deck with a, a lot of thought behind it. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about Young Dingoes, the magic streamer. He was playing Amethyst and Steel Fire the Cannons. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, this deck? Did you play against it at all? 
so I did not, but uh, Mason had a lot of very easy matches against it over the weekend. Uh, so on Friday, when all, yeah, on, on Friday when we were all casually hanging out, uh, Mason and Dingo were playing a uh, match for pancakes. The winner winner had to buy mm, the loser pancakes. Nice. And uh, <laughs> we had seen Dingo's deck on, you know, when, once deck list started going up and, you know, He's built really, really well for beating, like preying on the aggressive decks. Right. But Surfer, Carefree Surfer, he is not built to beat. Uh, and well, a, a willpower will do that to a person, you know, like it's so hard to chew up with steel damage effects. So I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Hanging out with Dingo was great. Getting to know him was awesome. He's a cool dude. Um, yeah. His deck, he kind of got, uh, shafted by the metagame a little bit yes where all the aggressive decks ended up just putting carefree surfer in their deck yeah and one of the things we would we would do we came up with during testing was you know when you're playing against a steel deck a lot of times when you're when you play a carefree surfer it's like well that's going to be in play at the end of the game and that was true every <laughs> single time somebody played a carefree surfer against Bingo. <laughs> that's pretty good all right he, he did beat some one game he told me uh he elsa'd them and like Elsa them again and like won the race. Nice. But they were still in play at the end of the game. He yeah. still just never killed one. <laughs> it's not difficult to do through without uh, let it go or dragon fire or be prepared for sure. A willpower, man, that's tough, especially when damage is so static, you know, like it is, or, you know, it, it uh, is cumulative. Uh, so Dingo, uh, thanks again to him. He actually just lost playing four top eight in that uh, last match of day number one, but uh, cool deck nonetheless. Uh, next up, we're going to take a look at Zach Powers' Ruby Amethyst Control. Now, this one looks a little bit more traditional. Uh, Powers won uh, our Invitational Qualifier on October the 14th, playing uh, what I would consider a fairly stock iteration of Ruby Amethyst Control. Two copies of Magic Mirror, uh, singletons of the uh, important uh, items like Shield of Virtue so you can ready your characters and challenge again or just protect them from opponent's challenges. One pocket watch to allow for some early challenging. Sometimes people play two or three. Uh, Helm going a little bit lighter here, I guess, to fit four copies of Gaston, Arrogant Hunter, so he has a little more interaction against the aggressive decks, even going up to three copies of Rafiki in order to have a little more uh, ways to challenge in the early game. Yeah, so I, I think this is, uh, looking over Zach's list, I think he also got kind of bit by his metagame prediction a little bit. You'll see that he has uh, three Jetsum in his deck, where right. most of the other Ruby Am builds had Pongo, and that was, I, I'm guessing he expected to see a lot more mirrors and, you know, be able to prey on his opponent's pongos with his jetsums and then still have something in play to uh, quest with. And basically it broke out that there was a ton of uh, amber steel decks. And then what nobody predicted, which was there was a bunch of amber sapphire decks. Right. And jetsum just does not line up very well versus them. That's where, you know, you're not... Basically, he was on level two and level one didn't show up. Right. And and that happens a lot in these uh, smaller events where it's invite only, where you have a bunch of people testing things out, trying to get a leg up on the competition. It's rare you see players playing the default best decks because they're often playing decks that try to prey on those decks. Uh, you know, I, I think Powers playing Ruby Amethyst Control in multiple events was very comfortable with with the archetype. Uh, he played it crisply, and uh, his build just slightly off for the meta, uh, but definitely uh, a, a more traditional Ruby Amethyst Control than the uh, Campo list that we saw earlier. 
Uh, next up, we're actually going to take a look at old Terran Hux Amber Amethyst Aggro deck. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this. But this is a hyper, hyper aggressive strategy featuring both of the one cost characters that can quest for two, Leela making a wish and Maleficent biding her time. Uh, these characters can come down early. You can protect them with Simba Protective Cub. And then uh, you use your later game characters to just try to finish things off. Um, you know, he was able to uh, win a couple matches early on, uh, but then wheels fell off closer to the end of the day. It didn't end up making day two, but uh, what do you think about old Taren Huck's list? He's a co-owner of Apex Gaming, uh, brother of Kyle Huck, the big boss man, but Taren Huck, the co-owner, played this uh, deck and uh, was playing for the Trevor Fund uh, for charity, and unfortunately for him, was unable to crack it into the day two. Yeah, Taren was an awesome dude. Uh, it was great to hang out with him and yeah. meet meet him he is maybe the best shuffleboard player i've ever seen (laughs) (laughs) uh for this deck though if you if if you have a friend who is so excited that they just got their server stitches and get to play amber sapphire ramp and you want to put them in the ground this is the deck for you (laughs) yeah bad matchup huh bunch of one cost characters a quest for two doesn't look so good against your um uh detective mickey deck huh yeah so they, you still have Lilo Simba, which is like the best way to, you know, attack the ramp deck. But then you just get to double down where you also have Maleficent. You can do Terran's favorite trick, which is, you know, quest for two with Maleficent or Lilo and then befuddle your own thing yeah. and then replay it. So it can't be it basically it's like readying it. Right. Right. Um, but then also like they get off to an early lore lead and then they just start playing Pascal's. And my only way to kill a Pascal is let it go or Hades. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to talk about inefficiency. Yeah. <laughs> now, this deck is particularly weak to uh, Tinkerbell, Giant Fairy, and Grab Your Sword. And so Terran, with a, a pretty huge metagame call, he's been playing this deck for quite some time. This was one of the first decks he built when he first started playing Lorcana, and he's been tuning it and honing it over the last month and change. And uh, he brought it to the event in the hopes that uh, he would be able to take it down, but unfortunately he was uh, hurt pretty badly by so much steel being in the meta. But very cool deck and something to look forward to for maybe some upgrades over the next few sets for sure and uh, a unique take on Amber Amethyst uh, as well. Uh, next up, we're going to be talking about uh, Tron is Bad's Amber Steel Stitch Blitz deck. This one is a bit more top-heavy, a bit more mid-rangey than the traditional builds, but still has Lilo into Simba Protective Cub. Uh, the five drops in the deck include Beast Hardheaded and Moana. Uh, what do you think about this build? Yeah, so I, I really like these more mid-rangey decks. Um, I, I think these are the decks that really shine from Lantern over Lilo, especially with the higher curve. Um, but you know, having Lilo plus Simba is like we talked about, that's just your, your bread and butter best start. Um, I do want to say that if anybody really wants to try this build, I know Moana is a great threat and looks really enticing, especially for steel mirrors, but there is an important ruling with Moana that if you have two Moanas and you quest with one, the other one is not allowed to quest. Yeah, so Moana's ability, uh, we'll get that one on the screen for you, but Moana's ability, you know, when she does quest, it readies all your other princesses, but that doesn't specify that those princesses have to be exerted to be put into ready. And so when you have one Moana, you usually go quest, quest, quest with all my other princesses, quest with Moana to ready them, and then you use them to challenge or just to have them be ready so they can't be challenged back. 
But having two monos in play didn't really work well together, so you can only really quest with one. It's a little bit of a bummer. I wish that it said ready all any of your exerted uh, princesses, but there might be some weird rules thingies in there that might be broken later on when you start doing like that. But uh, unfortunately for Tron is bad, didn't make it out of the first pod was one of our players who started off uh, with an 03 record in our first pod and was eliminated then. But uh didn't seem like he got a fair shake. You know, I, I didn't actually get to watch any of his matches on camera and I feel bad about it, but we love Tron is bad and we're glad he was able to make it out to the event. Uh, if you played against this one, what do you think would have happened? Uh, so I think this, this is really good for us um, for the ramp deck. The Lilo stitch start or this Lilo Simba start is scary, but Tron doesn't have the Aladdin's or the other low curve to kind of follow it up and right. punish for the aggressive start. A bigger it's curve like, is like walking into your game plan because your deck just goes way over the top of that. Exactly. And you know, Mo- Moana is a great threat, but Moana lines up pretty poorly against Hades and let it go. And also it has the added benefit of because there's so many Moanas. If he was to play two, I can just ignore them because only the first one matters. So there's no reason for me to answer one of them. Right. And I, all I need to do is play to the board and try and race them, which is also not you know terribly hard for me to do because I have Maleficent in my build, which is also a five drop three lore character. So not nah, for sure. And, um, you know, uh, I think that there's also some growing pains in a deck like this when you play Stitch Rockstar and you don't flood with those cheap one and two cost characters. Obviously, if you look at the numbers, we have 20 characters out of 60 that are one or two costs. But in a Rockstar deck, I think that number needs to be closer to 30. And I often go over that. Um, and it's mostly just to facilitate uh, the explosive turns from Rockstar. Because if you play a whole new world or have Rockstar in play and are just like trying to churn and you just draw a couple fours, fives, you know, it just it starts to gum the gum up the works. And, uh, you know, him going bigger is obviously a nod to trying to beat the other aggressive strategies that are also playing Tinkerbell, Giant Fairy and Grab Your Sword. But unfortunately for Tron is bad, didn't quite get there. All right. Next up, uh, former world champion of Magic the Gathering and uh, day two competitor after starting off 3-0 in the first pod. Nathan Storyer playing Ruby Amethyst Control. What did you think when he started off 3-0 with Ruby Amethyst and made it into day two like that? Uh, I was not surprised. Me neither. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a little disappointed that if I played against him, I would have to be on the draw. Uh, was yeah. mostly what I was I was disappointed about. But uh, you know, we we as you know players in the event were talking uh, on the first day, and the Lorcana is a much lower variance game than what we're used to as Magic players. Um, there's just like you can't get you know quote unquote mana screwed because the vast majority of your deck is ink. So it, it basically allows like we expect the better players to win even more in Lorcana than in like a magic tournament. And Nathan obviously wins a lot at magic being a world champion, a pro tour champion, even at the age of 21. That is. Yeah. We celebrated his 21st birthday, but he'd already won a pro tour and worlds by then. So yeah. Yeah, And uh, Nathan has what like, I don't know if there's a card I would want to change about this list, to be honest. It looks great. You know, the three pocket watch stood out to me as something uh, unique in that most players I've seen play one or two. I like two because it works well with Mickey Mouse plus the broom package to do like that double hit uh, turn where you get to give two brooms 
um, uh, rush so that you can just like keep shuffling stuff in over and over again. And it punishes your opponent for questing later in the game when you're like in an attrition battle. Um, but other than that, you know, uh, no baby Aladdin's, which I like because I thought baby Aladdin was pretty weak in the deck. It was basically just a shift target for the heroic outlaw, but the three pocket watches kind of gives you that virtual effect already. And so, um, that's why we essentially cut Aladdin's four more pocket watches. It looks like. Yeah. So the third pocket watch is actually insurance for if there, if Ruby Amethyst had been more popular, um, what, what you've been referencing uh, referencing before was that the the mickey broom combo with two pocket watches lets you loop your elsa and your other mickey and that way you always have that combo where you can go elsa lock down your characters challenge it with broom twice shuffle in a mickey and an elsa the third pocket watch lets you add a third card in that rotation so you can start putting in a maleficent or an aladdin or an extra elsa and that's where that third pocket watch comes in but the nice thing is when, you know, there weren't a bunch of Ruby Amethyst mirrors, it's still just ink and you can just get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, it's just ink, Magic Mirror is not. And that is why uh, there is a lot of tension in these decks is because many of the top end threats like uh, Elsa Spirit of Winter, Magic Mirror, Be Prepared and, uh, you know, Ursula. We don't see Ursula in this build, right? Ursula, normally a huge part of the strategy but you know nathan understands that in order to play a bunch of uninkables you have to cut other uninkables and uh he was way more focused on trying to beat the early aggressive character rushes uh with gaston arrogant hunter times four and um you know teching for the ruby amethyst mirrors with those three copies of white rabbit's pocket watch and the third copy of magic mirror where most time people play two yeah absolutely i i do think ursula is way more important as you know part of a plan of when you're going to make your Ruby Amethyst deck more aggressive, mm. like Matt Campo's build, right. where you really want to be playing Ursula to kind of, it's like a bait and switch almost. You play your Ursula, you get your card back, and then you have this eight willpower, three lore character in play. So they have to play to the board so that they aren't just losing a race to you because there's no way they're going to challenge the Ursula off the table very easily. And then you just get to sing Be Prepared and slam a BLT. That's like the plan. Right. Right. And when you don't have a bunch of BLTs in your deck, you don't necessarily need those Ursulas to be that, you know, the 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 worm on the hook. Yeah. Uh, one thing I do want to note is that by playing more copies of Gaston Arrogant Hunter, uh, Nathan actually created an arms race against the the uh, Amber Steel Stitch Blitz decks. Uh, normally, when you start off with like Lilo and December Protective Cub, uh, you follow that up with Ariel Spectacular Singer on three. And um, the Ruby Amethyst deck, in order to to participate in the early turns of the game, will play Archimedes, Magic Broom, Gaston, and Maleficent Sorceress, these early characters that can challenge, um, you know, to make sure that their opponent doesn't quest a bunch. But what that does is that it actually unlocks the, the really strong part of Grab Your Sword, which is your opponent decides to stall the board with you. And because you have grab your sword to break the stall, you just choose not to quest for a few turns so that when you have the grab your sword, you sing it, quest for a bunch, maybe continue your board dominance. And then you'd have to essentially skirt the line uh, against be prepared for the rest of the game. And and that's just the nature of the beast. But that's also why Carefree Surfer started to get better. You know, like these are just cards that allow you to win longer attrition battles against Ruby Amethyst. 
All right, next up, we're going to talk about your teammate, Mason Clark. He played the Empire Sapphire, Rampunzel. We called it Blue Punch Buggy. We called it Rampunzel. Uh, Matt wanted to call it Blue Hawaii. Uh, I kind of like Blue Hawaii. I kind of like Blue Hawaii, too. So maybe maybe we'll call it Blue Hawaii from now on. But this deck is uh, the same 60 that you played, right? No. So this is two cards different. Okay. Uh, Brennan and I both played the same 60. Brennan and I had... Um, from this list, minus one Robin Hood, minus one Bell. You've forgotten me, and we had two Maximus Bodyguard. Did y'all all play four Bell? I thought some of y'all had three Bell. No, we all had four Bell. Okay. I think Krista had three Bell. I see, I see. Um, yeah, and Mason will tell you that you know he doesn't have the Maximuses because he worked like an eleven-hour day, and then also had date night. But I'm convinced <laughs> that it's that he can't. He doesn't know how to generate a Dreamborn link to resubmit his deck. Okay. Yeah. Well, regardless, uh, y'all three all, all came with Amber, Sapphire, uh, Rampunzel, Punch Buggy, Blue Hawaii, whatever you want to call it. And all three of you made it into the elimination rounds of day number two. Uh, Mason is uh, someone who's been working with, with Wizards of the Coast lately to design magic sets that will be coming out over the next few years. Uh, he is a coach, and he is our good friend, and we love him, and we are happy he was able to come out and uh, do so well in our tournament. Uh, let, but we've already talked about your deck a bunch, so let's just keep moving on. Next up, Nicholas Roush, Amber Steel Stitch Blitz. His uh, version actually got me really excited after he won our uh, September 30th event with Amber Steel Stitch Blitz. And the, the thing that stood out to me the most in his um, configuration was two copies of Fire the Cannons. This one-cost uh, interactive piece allowed him to bust up an opposing... You know, Gaston, Arrogant Hunter, if you're in the mirror match, you can kill your opponent's one-drop character. On the turns where you're playing your wheel, your whole new world, you just want a bunch of things that cost one and two. And Fire the Cannons gives you like a unique uh, piece of interaction on those turns, whereas normally you would just be flooding the board with more one and two cost characters. And it just looked so powerful when he was doing it that even Don Delosier ended up copying him. While he moved away from that oh, Fire the Cannons down to one, up this curve quite a bit with three copies of Stitch Carefree Surfer. I don't necessarily agree, but uh, I really liked his build with Fire the Cannons, and it made me think about the deck in a different way. Yeah, so you'll see a couple of switches like that. You see the Carefree Surfers and also the Smashes added here, and that isn't necessarily that, you know, he's he's diluting his own plan a bit right? because these mirrors are becoming so common and so popular that you kind of you you have to go up the curve a little bit if you want an edge and if you're not doing that even if you even if you're both flat right and stay as low and as aggressive as possible you're even so then if you start going up the curve you get an advantage and if your opponent starts going up the curve then you're even again so you got to go all the way up the curve to the surfers yeah uh, Nick, uh, after winning that uh, tournament on the 30th, uh, we we talked a little bit uh, about the archetype over the next few weeks. Uh, I'm a big Nick Roush fan now. I thought his list was good and well thought out uh, for the event on the 30th. I didn't like his list as much for the Invitational itself as I did his uh, September 30th build. But again, he's just trying to metagame against what he thought was going to be in the event. And uh, everyone comes to their own conclusions uh, via testing and via, uh, you know, thought processes and whatnot. So uh, I do quickly want to shout yeah. out Nick, actually. Just I do think his list is really, really strong. I think he probably should have had the fourth whole new world. Um, yeah. I know he personally just doesn't like the fourth as I've talked to him before. 
But well, you have I, to manage those uninkables sometimes. And we saw some people cutting Lilo, making a wish, but he ended up cutting one of the whole new worlds. I have in the past cut a grab your sword to do that. But he, mm-hmm. again, doesn't really like doing the wheel thing too much, relying more on the carefree surfers and the rock stars to do the heavy lifting for the card advantage. Yeah, I, I think that's a reason. Like, if you find that's happening, that's why I really like the the one drop Simbas. Sure, is just the loot is really good for that. I agree. Um, we saw. I did want to yeah. shout out Nick for. I think he actually predicted the metagame really well mm-hmm. with his build. Like, he is built very much for the mirrors, especially with these Cinderellas and the smashes. He really is prioritizing, you know, killing your opponent's singer, like. That's why they play Smash is just to kill the opposing aerial so that they can't get ahead with uh, a grab your sword. And Cinderella is huge because it's a singer that can't be smashed or removed very easily and doesn't have to be shifted. So you don't have to set it up. So I really wanted to point out that, you know, I think he built his deck very well for the metagame. But then I think the breakdown of the pods and his matchups, he got kind of hammered on you know he played into a bunch more ruby amethyst and such so yeah uh all right uh next up we're going to talk about kyle huck's uh emerald amethyst no touchy uh this is a deck we actually saw quite a few times at the apex gaming home store in caldwell ohio over the course of our uh many invita- or our four invitational qualifier events two regular invitational quali- qualifiers and two last chance qualifiers um, you know, Randall Webbing actually went uh, into the top four, I believe, of our first event on September 30th with Emerald Amethyst, No Touchy. And in this build, we are very low to the ground. Pascal, Olaf, Flynn Rider trying to be really aggressive in the early turns and then using things like Hans, Scheming Prince, and Cusco, Temperamental Emperor to close out the game in spots where your opponent might not have the ability to challenge you or deal with your character before you can quest with it. Yeah, I, I've, you know, I've had a love-hate relationship with these decks. They definitely fit a, sp- a place in the meta where they are really good against Ruby Amethyst and really weak to steal decks. Yes, yes. And, you know, that's not really the type of approach I like to have. I don't like to play Rock, Paper, Scissors every round. I really like to play, <laughs> you know, whatever game I, yeah. I'm playing. Um, but, yeah, I, I think... Uh, Kyle played this deck. It's been popular definitely at the Apex events. And I think maybe Kyle, because Kyle typically plays, you know, Ruby Amethyst or like the Amethyst cards, right? Like more of the slow control decks is my understanding. I mean, I, I've seen him play a ton of this. We we Every time oh, okay. we'd visit for the Magic events and stuff, he would he would be like, hey, you want to play some Lorcana? And this is the deck he'd be fighting me with. So I think that he just picked this like a month ago and just worked on it a bunch. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, I, I always thought we were he was more likely to play like Ruby Amethyst and then maybe wanted to shy away from the mirrors. Maybe he then, did, but he got sick of playing hour-long games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so he expected a lot of Ruby Amethyst and then played this deck that's really good against it. And then it just broke the other way that there was just a million steel decks. Yeah. Uh like you said, there were a million steel decks and he did get squished. He went 03 to start the event and unfortunately was out uh early on but uh still had a great time and uh he hosted a a wonderful party for nathan sawyer for his 21st birthday at his house on saturday and uh, we all had a really great time playing shuffleboard and hanging out and uh, we thank him for uh you know working with the lost boys to put on this event at the apex gaming center in uh caldwell 
so next up, we're going to talk about Krista O's Ruby Sapphire Ramp. Krista was a later addition to the Invitational, and, but, uh, you know, I've been talking to her quite a bit over the last few months, and I knew that she was super into the game. She had been testing with Young Dingo and our uh, friend and fellow streamer, PT Bench. And uh, PT Bench actually came out to the event as well and tried to last chance qualifier. Didn't quite get there, but had a good time hanging out with him and, uh, and uh, Krista O. Very close to making day two with this Ruby Sapphire Ramp deck. Unfortunately, I think just got bonked off by y'all's like super go long deck and the Ruby Amethyst control decks. Yeah, so I, I think Krista's deck is well built. Um, I think the only things I would really want to change is I would, it seems like they may, maybe didn't have enough time to figure out exactly which five drop was best, the way they have them split, where they have three Mauis two Aurora, two Jasmine, and a Maleficent. Mm-hmm. My gut, just based on the amount of games I've played, would say that, you know, if you feel like you're Threat Light and want to trim a Maui, I would still definitely just have four Maleficents, like sure. we did, and then figure out whether Jasmine or Aurora was best. But, like, my gut would tell me I would just want the four Mauis. Um, yeah. Especially with 20 uninkables, you really just want to be able to ink as much as you can and not get punished for what you had to ink. One thing I, I want to note is I, I think the five cost Aurora is somewhat of a trap. Uh, you know, it grants wards all your other characters, but you want to protect characters that are going to be questing normally or that are doing things. Like the whole point of ward is to make it so your opponent can't use Dragonfire on them or whatever. And uh, I just don't really know what we're trying to protect with the Aurora, except maybe the Bell. Uh, what I watched a lot when I was watching Krista play was she would go ramp, 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 and then her top end spell would would often not be something that could stand on its own and often needed to have the opponent have something in play to interact with, whether it was Hades Infernal Schemer or Maleficent Monstrous Dragon. Obviously, you know, she had four copies of the Aladdin Heroic Outlaw and two Mickey Mouse BLT, but the strength of her deck really came from ramping it to be prepared and just having that a couple turns ahead of schedule against the aggressive strategies. Uh, unfortunately, though, uh, when it comes to playing like super long games against Ruby Amethyst, and against the Stitch Carefree Surfer decks, she just doesn't have resource generation in these colors to keep up with things like Carefree Surfer. And it really showed. We watched her on camera a couple times, and she would have awesome starts. One drop, you know, or sorry, two drop into Ramp Effect, into Ramp Effect, into Hades Infernal Schemer. And then we're done. That's yep. it. Yeah. So. Yeah, and that was something we found also, even with our deck, you know, sometimes you do the ramp, and then you, you kind of just you've run out of gas after you play your one big thing. And then you're just kind of like every turn you like draw your card and you're like, is this it? No one jump ahead. Oh, it is. Mm. All right. We're good. Yeah. All right. Next up, uh, we're going to talk about Brennan DeCandio's build of Amber Sapphire Rapunzel, Rampunzel, Blue Punch Buggy. I'll call it Blue Punch Buggy because that's what he wanted to call his. Uh, So is this one the same as yours? Yeah, this is exact same card for card. All right, tell us a little bit about Brennan. Uh, we don't need to talk about his deck too much, but I know you and Brennan are good friends. Me and Brennan are good friends. I want to hear what you got to say about him. Yeah, so Brennan is one of the smartest deck builders I personally have ever met. Um, he just has this talent, especially for early metagames, of identifying a gap or the the most powerful thing that people aren't seeing, which I love because that's exactly what I like to do at tournaments mm-hmm. is play the the like 
1.5 best deck that nobody is actually gunning for. Right. right? Like, I can play the best deck, but I really don't care too much for playing, like, uh, a mirror match, you know? Um, and I also really like doing a really powerful thing that somebody hasn't planned for me to be doing. Because not only are you doing a powerful thing so you have an edge, but they aren't equipped to deal with it. So then you just get to run away with the game. And especially in long events, free wins are the best thing you can do. They just keep your, your mental game strong. They pad your record. So, you know, you don't have to, like, you can really focus on the games you're losing because the games you win are a lot easier. So uh, Brennan was often uh, in the Magic the Gathering uh, team stuff we played. He was often in the standard seat. And if you know anything about Magic and standard, you'll know that standard was often the format that was rotating and changing the most. And they put him on it because of his uh, tenacity and finding the strategies that were often uh, overlooked or ignored and finding unique combinations of cards in those smaller pools of cards uh, to get an advantage. And he would often have one of the better records on the team. My favorite Brennan story, though, uh, had him going like 8-1 in day one of a, an old SCG Tour team event. Uh, I looked at his deck and I was like, how does this work? How do you crew this one card, this Heart of Kieran card? Um, you know, it, and uh, he looked at me and goes, "I ah, just uh, just get there eventually or whatever. Like it was a, it was like obvious, uh, obviously like a small mistake in deck building or whatever, but it, did, it didn't end up coming up too often. And uh, day two, though, he went like two and four and it came up a bunch and he was on camera a bunch while I was doing commentary and I would just holler at him from across the room like, oh yeah, Colonel Hart Kieran now, you SOB. <laughs> so we love Brennan and uh, we're glad to see y'all working together and uh, I'm sure we'll see him again very, very soon uh, playing more Disney's Lakana. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about uh, Brian Koval, Bosch and Roll, uh, his Amber Steel Heel. This is a much bigger version of uh, Amber Steel deck. Uh, tell me a little bit about this one. Yeah, so this is the you know, quote unquote, Amber Steel mid-range deck that I had been talking a lot about on previous episodes of the podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of this archetype. And this was honestly, maybe not the thing we were planning to beat the most, but, you know, kind of caught astray from this was the deck we were referring to when Brennan made his, you know, if we're all going to be playing a bunch of mirrors, why don't we just ramp into Carefree Surfer? Right. And I did play against Brian in this event. And Brian had a rough day day one he uh he lost his first round to krista playing ramp then played against me playing ramp and then he had he got to play against uh kyle on aggro and then he got to like beat another aggro deck to to still be live and then he got ramped again <laughs> by mason <laughs> yeah but, but on his break after you know making it into the top eight he just played like seven pickup games with brennan on ramp and he won like one of them. So oh, his no. whole day was just playing against ramp and losing and then Tough. just getting to prey on like two aggro decks very quickly. And so he just had a long kind of just hard day. Yeah. I mean, you build your deck to be very polarized against uh, the field or whatever, you know, like it didn't it didn't work out for him, unfortunately. But uh, I love Bosch and Roll and uh, he, he makes some great Magic the Gathering content. And uh, hopefully he keeps playing Lorcan and we get to see him again pretty soon. 
next up, we're going to talk about the the last two decks. Uh, they're both Ember Steel Stitch Blitz, but they are both also by um, two of our top four competitors. Uh, first off, let's start with Don Delosier's Ember Steel Stitch Blitz deck. Uh, we've seen this type of a deck a couple times. So let's just talk about the the standout differences. Uh, really, the only thing that catches me uh, off guard are two copies of Simba Future King, which we saw in Kurt Spies's build, and the two copies of Fire the Cannons. Uh, these uh, additions to the archetype, you know, I, I feel like the Simbas smooth out some of your draws later in the game, like we talked about with Kurt's build. Uh, but then the Fire of the Cannons, you know, these are just two different one-cost cards that on your big wheel turns with Whole New World just do significantly different things and uh, give you a lot of flexibility. Yeah, I talked to Dawn quite a bit about her approach to this deck and Lorcana in general. And Dawn was playing this deck as much as possible as just an aggro deck. You know, like like how you like playing the deck. Right. We're just absolutely play to the board, get ahead. And then, you know, as you start to maybe run out of gas just a little bit, you know, that's where you hammer it home with a, a whole new world into another rock star and stay full and keep the pedal on the like keep your foot on the gas the whole time. Yeah. And don't let your opponent breathe. And you see that with, you know, fire the cannons and zero smash. Dawn is trying to get ahead early and not play these you know, bobbing and weaving of, oh, I need to manage you being able to sing so that I can sing. And no, Don's like, I'm going to get you dead and then I'm going to sing. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, and I, I think the the Fire of the Can, as we talked about, that was an innovation from Nicholas Roush, but it, it's not a card that like Steel Decks don't play very often or whatever. Like Fire the Cannons works with uh, the Captain of the Jolly Roger version of Captain Hook. Um, and it's just a cheap interactive game piece that is quite efficient if you, you know, all things considered. The only real problem is that it's not inkable. And so when you start to draw too many of them against the control decks or the carefree surfer opponents like y'all, um, it starts to look pretty weak. But what it does do is it gives you some really cheap answers to opponents' countermeasures like Guests on Arrogant Hunter. And on the turns where you're refueling with Whole New World, you can discard them to Simba. These are just instances where any game piece matters when card advantage doesn't. And you just want a widespread of you know, versatility in terms of how you're going to be playing your turn when you're doing your most explosive things. So big shout out to Don. Uh, unfortunately, losing in the finals against you. How was that match? Tell us a little bit about that match. Yeah, so that matchup is very play draw dependent, especially against Don's build. And were um, you on the play or the draw in the finals? I was on the play, um, which was huge. Um, I, th I Don and I agreed that if I'm on the play, I'm about a 55% favorite in any game. And if she's on the play, she's probably a little bit above 60%. I would say that on the play, they were closer to 60 or 65. It, it looked pretty gross whenever it was. And Don, you know, all do are all respect given was aggressively mulliganing for the Lilo into Simba starts. And mm -hmm. often that would lead to some stumbling when drawing too many of the songs. But what it also did was allowed her to just get really on top of uh, the early game and put you on the back foot so that you were unable to catch up uh in in some of those spots yeah it definitely caught her a little bit when i went back and watched the the like um the videos of the games where i was really you know behind the gun because she had such an aggressive start yeah. but i wasn't i wasn't thinking about what you just mentioned during the games of yeah she mulliganed all of her inkables that weren't the good cards for the aggressive draw so then 
come turn four, she has like two grab your swords. And my whole game plan is just managing her singers. Right. So I didn't really feel from my side how bad I was making her draws. Um, because I'm used to, you know, playing against people who aren't mulliganing as aggressively. Mm -hmm. So their draws are a little bit more functional when I'm interacting with them. And I just didn't pick up on that until I watched the replays of, you know, how hamstrung she ended up being as a result. Um, Which I'm not saying that I I think her approach is still probably correct, but it does have that added. It's a double edged sword. Well, it, we're all very new at this, right? This game's only been around for about two months now, and Don was just taking things to the extreme with the Mulligan. We actually talked about this quite a bit on coverage, where she was the only person I saw all day that was regularly Mulliganing five or more cards every time, and that was not an exaggeration. I think her average Mulligan was over four cards her time. And I don't think anyone else's was over three. It was just, uh, you know, a conscious effort went on the play to always be digging for Lilo into Simba. And then when you're on the draw, maybe looking for different countermeasures like Captain Hook or Prince Eric. I do think that actually is probably one of the things our ramp deck did really well too, where we weren't mulliganing four or five cards because we have the added downside of we have just some real stinkers. Like if you hit like two Hades, <laughs> yeah. off your Mulligan, you're really in a bad spot. So you can't go crazy with it. Yeah. But our deck does take really, really powerful advantage of the Mulligan of finding your ramp pieces. And I, I think that was one thing that the deck did really well where, you know, I've played Ruby Amethyst a lot and you Mulligan, your non inkables, but you pretty much keep everything that's ink just yeah. so you don't, a, so you don't get kind of hosed when you draw a bunch of unequals off your mulligan. But also, you know, you have a lot of early game, you have a lot of mid game, and then your top end is your ink- uninkables anyway. So, right. All right. Last but not least, uh, my man Frank Karsten, all the way from Eindhoven, the Netherlands, came to do battle in the Lost Boys Lorcan Invitational, made it all the way to the top four with his Amber Steel Stitch Blitz deck, unfortunately able to make the finals or take it down. Uh, his build of Amber Steel Stitch Blitz, uh, we talked li- about his list a lot over the, he stayed with me, uh, in the week leading up to the event. Uh, after deck lists were posted, I decided to, you know, ask a, a bunch of the competitors about their card choices and stuff. And Frank is actually um, notorious in Magic for playing singletons to fill out his curve and to give his deck uh, specific answers or threats uh, along the curve that uh, might not be good in multiples or have other reasons for just playing so few of them. And uh, if you'll notice in this build, we got one copy of Cinder Protective Cut, or uh, Future King, uh, one copy of uh, Maximus uh, Bodyguard, uh, one copy of Lantern, one copy of Smash. These are all just kind of curve fillers, but also role players. The card Lantern is often bad in multiples. The card Smash is often bad in multiples because it's expensive for three damage. Uh, Simba Future King doesn't rumble in combat very well, but looting away a dead to grab your sword or a whole new world in some matchups can make all the difference. And so, uh, you know, I, I love that approach to his deck building for this event. Um, and his list, I thought, was, was quite good. Yeah, I, I think his deck was great. It's funny how close his list is to Dawn's mm-hmm. and how much different the games felt. Yeah. And I was just thinking about that while you're describing this this deck. And obviously I was looking at the lists each each time we played, and it looked almost the exact same, but it felt so much different. And I think that was caused by Dawn's aggressive mulligans, where yes. Frank definitely was more conservative and keeping more functional hands and cards. 
And so his aggressive starts were just so much more infrequent. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of crazy how much of a difference that makes to the games. Well, I mean, just the different approach of looking for Lilo, making a wish on turn one. You know, if you put all of your effort into doing that, um, you know, the you can really get under your opponent and generate a bunch of lore early that they can't particularly challenge well. And then all of a sudden, you're just at a point in the game on turn five or six where you're about to wheel and you already have ten lore and your opponent only has one or two characters and... Yeah, not really a whole lot you can do about after that. But uh, congratulations to Frank for making top four. Uh, We appreciate him coming out. Well, Harlan, uh, I'm going to give you, let's say, two minutes to talk about whatever you want, and then we're going to do card of the week, and then we're going to wrap it up. Yeah, so go ahead. Uh, Well, quickly before, yeah, well, I'll talk, I'll say two fun Frank stories. Okay, sorry, not yet. All right, go ahead. Well, no, no, no. no. I, that, I'm going to use my two minutes on Frank. Oh, great. Awesome. Uh, perfect. Yeah, it was it was awesome meeting Frank. I had never met Frank because I wasn't much of a, you know, pro tour player. But, you know, growing up, I saw Frank playing magic. I read Frank Karsten articles. Same. It was great, you know, getting to know him and meeting him. Um, it was fun teaching him how to play shuffleboard. <laughs> <laughs> I actually when we, we sat down for our top four match, I asked him if uh if he would play shuffleboard instead of Lorcana for our match. And he said, no, I'd like to have a chance of winning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then there was, he played against Kurt Spies in one of the rounds. And I was making fun of Kurt during the game or after the game, because Frank had his lantern in play and Kurt had none. And Kurt plays four and Frank plays one. Yeah. (laughs) Look, you play the card to draw the card, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You you play them to draw them. All right. uh, So, uh, that leads us to our final segment, and that's going to be Cut of the Week. All right. Well, Harlan, what's your card of the week? I think every single person could guess this. No, I can't. Can you? Go ahead. It's I don't want to care free surfer. Okay. Yeah, Carefree Surfer. Surprise of no one. Was it, so tell us about this card. Uh, yeah, so it's a card that has only gone up in my rankings as I've played more and more. Um, the games are so based around Rapunzel that the boards stall inherently because of Rapunzel. And it also is like the best card to combo with Rapunzel. So like just uh, an example is Ruby Amethyst, right? They never. They have learned to never, ever, ever quest or sing with their Maleficence because the worst thing ever is just those getting attacked even by like a Mickey and then turning on Rapunzel for a draw two, right? Yeah, but, I, the Rapunzel is an insane punish in a in a world where you have a lot of incentive to quest in the game, and it often creates extremely long games because neither player wants to make themselves vulnerable to that punish. Yep. And then also, so like that's how the Ruby Amethyst matchup goes, right? Yeah. But then they need to play Maui, and Maui's like their best card because it can represent taking down two, maybe even three characters because the strength of our characters is so low in the ramp deck. But, you know, you kind of like set them up by letting them Maui you, and then you come over the top with the Surfer Stitch into the Maui, and they that puts six damage on your surfer, Carefree Surfer, and then you just get to Rapunzel it twice. Yeah. And draw six cards. It it's that's like the bait and switch from our deck. And yeah, I, I've just loved the card. It's so good. Rapunzel's obviously the best card in the game. But obviously Surfer, uh, I don't know about all yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I think Rap- the only reason there's even an argument now is that 
Rapunzel is so good and ubiquitous that it is changing the dynamics of the game played on the board to make it not the best card, but that you're just feeling the presence of it regardless. Ah, the threat of the thing is more important than the thing itself. Yes. A common, yeah, like I was yeah, teaching like a that. friend of mine to play that, you know, has played card games for a long time and was like, Rapunzel is just the most broken thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and he's like, is there any advantage to be gained by just not having it in your deck because they'll play around it anyway? And yeah. I was like, there definitely is value there, but it's inkable for one. So there's no reason to not have it in your deck. And then also there's only one chapter out. So like you're, you don't <laughs> just play the good cards. Game. What are you talking yeah, about? Just play just the good play cards. The cards. Maybe down the road, you can just like not have it in your deck and your mm. opponent has to respect it anyway. Like in your aggressive decks, that might be really cool. All right, well, my card of the week is going to be extremely controversial, and I want to hear you laugh when I say it. Uh, my card of the week is Ursula's Cauldron. Oh, Todd. This two-cost item uh, allows you to manipulate the top of your deck, and uh, you put one on top and one on bottom. Uh, it is often maligned by players of Magic the Gathering because it does not replace itself, does not generate card advantage, unlike Magic Mirror. It's also not inkable. It's also bad in multiples. But I think that this is a card that requires a lot more nuance in discussion uh, because there are so many games of Lorcana where both players just have five, six, seven, eight cards in hand at, at multiple points in the game. And at that point, the, the nature of true traditional card advantage starts to break down and the specificity of needs in terms of be prepared or direct removal or finishers, uh, starts to take precedent over those raw card advantage and card quality becomes, uh, somewhat more beneficial over longer periods of time. I don't think playing four of them is right. I don't think playing three of them is right. I don't even know if playing two of them is right. But I do know that when someone plays on turn two and has an active for the entire game, I don't usually win those games. And I think that uh, players like Matthew Campo and his teammate, you know, they brought two copies of it in their deck and they played no copies of Magic Mirror and they had some pretty good success with that build. At the very least, I think it's worth taking another look. And uh, I know that it's something that I have a lot of preconceived notions about. So I wanted to highlight it and uh, give it a little more of a spotlight because it might be really good and we just don't know it. And we uh, we kind of turn it into a joke, you know? Yeah, we d we definitely did a little bit, but... To double down on the joke, <laughs> do you want to add a versus video to our docket of I'll play Stoyer's build and you play Campos? No, it's obviously worse than the mirror. It's obviously worse than the mirror. <laughs> well, but it's, it's worse Campos, than ramp, too. Well, Campos' whole build seemed like it was not built for the mirror necessarily because it had the, uh, you know, it had like, I don't know. It just didn't even have brooms in it, right? Like, what if the game goes uh, so long? He had two brooms. Oh, he sorry. Actually, yeah. He okay. actually had his deck built specifically for the mirror. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, maybe maybe we will do Ruby Amethyst time. mirror. We we can only play one game because it'll take an hour and a half, right? So. It, it won't because you're playing Campos build. You're going to mm. run out of resources and die. Ah, cool. All yeah. right, fine. Well, we'll just have to to put it to put our pedal or our money money where our mouth is. That's why what I, I want to say. So pancakes on the line. Pancakes on the line. Alrighty. Well. That's going to do it for this episode of the Lost Boys podcast. Uh, we had an excellent event uh, this weekend at the Apex Gaming Home Store in Caldwell, Ohio. And uh, the Lost Boys Lorcan Invitational was a rousing success. Uh, our viewership on Twitch was quite good. I was very happy with that. And the players were all happy and had a great time. And uh, Harlan, 
congratulations once again for taking down this event. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, this is probably a great time for uh, if anybody wants to submit cards for our other segment, Ask Carlin Anything. We didn't really do any this week, but uh, we definitely can get those added for next week. Yeah. Make sure to ask us some questions in the the comments of the uh, YouTube video or just at me on Twitter and uh, say, hey, I want to ask Carlin a question and I'll ask it to him. Don't worry. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of the Lost Boys podcast. Thank you so much to Harlan for coming out and congrats again once, uh, congrats once again for winning the invitational. Uh, thank you so much to Colin Taren Huck for hosting. Uh, thank you so much to the players who watched us on Twitch and YouTube. And, uh, thanks again to the players for coming out, especially my man Frank Carson, all the way from Eindhoven, the Netherlands. Uh, he was, he stayed with me all week and it was a lot of fun. And, uh, we had some really nice conversations and car trips and, uh, I'll remember this week for a long, long time. So that's great. All right. Also, this weekend, uh, this Sunday, so like two days after this comes out, I will be in Fairfax, Virginia, at Comics and Games Paradise to play a Lorcana tournament. So yeah. come on out if you want to talk to me or play against me. I'll be there all day. Um, it'll be a really fun event. It's got a great prize pool, and uh, let's see if somebody can stop me from winning that one too. Yeah, uh, Games and Comics Paradise is our sponsor for the Lost Boys podcast, and they are centered in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, and again, they are having a Lorcana event this weekend, so make sure to check out gcparodice.com for more information about the event itself, uh, as well as find all of the singles you might need for your Lorcana deck. Uh, gcparodice.com. Thank you so much to them for being a sponsor of the Lost Boys. Uh, all right, that's going to do it. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. I'm Tandy. That's Harlan. See you later.